episode of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. You can find my movie reviews and interviews 24-7 in print and online in the U.S. and abroad, but every Monday I am right here at AdrenalineRadio.com, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And a big shout-out to all of our international listeners who pick us up on on various frequencies and internet radio around the globe, especially our Our Italian listeners, you guys are faithful, loyal listeners. Thank you very much. And also a big shout out to our listeners in Russia, particularly in the Moscow area. Um, So glad that you enjoy joining us. Um, Today's going to be an interesting story. Hopefully this week, for those our regular listeners, you know last week we had a bit of a phone issue, thanks to the phone company. And our our lines were not working. So unfortunately, uh, one of our guests, Heidi Yeeman, she was trying to call in. And obviously it wasn't ringing. And she was getting either a ring or a busy signal. Um, and But our 1130 guest last week, <coughs> Michael um, Stephen Portland, uh, his publicist texted me and said, hey, there's something wrong. Uh, which is when we found out something was indeed the phone system uh, in the local area here was not functioning. Uh, So we improvised, and you all got to hear our conversation with Stephen talking about his wonderful film, Something. Um, But we've already checked the phones today. This has now been added to the weekly ritual for for a live show. Now we not only doing audio checks uh, on the equipment here, we're now checking the phones. Phones are working today, and I'm awfully glad because we have we have some wonderful, relatively new filmmakers who are joining us today. Uh, about the quarter hour mark, we're going to have co-writers and directors Andre Phillips and Charles Violo uh, with us to talk about their film Lupe. Lupe actually premiered at Slamdance earlier this year. It is it's an interesting film. It's a beautifully shot film. Um, and that's all I'll say about it right now. But it deals with discovery and self-identity. That's also something that we're exploring in a film called Woods Rider. And we're going to be ha- we're going to have Cambria Matlow, the director, writer, and editor of that, calling in at the half hour mark. Uh, Woods Rider is a documentary. It is the personal story of nineteen year old nineteen uh, year old Sadie Ford, a snow uh, snowboarder, who. It comes out digitally tomorrow, as a matter of fact. And she lives in a tent in the snow with her faithful companion dog. And uh, so we're going to talk to Cambria about that. That is her first feature. Uh, Lupe is the first feature for Andre Phillips and Charles Volo. And hopefully at some point in the show we'll have time today so that you can hear at least part of my interview, exclusive interview, with the incredible guys involved with The Iron Orchard. It is a stunning film. Uh, it came out in limited release last week. It is expanding. 
uh, to various theaters and hopefully will be out on digital and VOD platforms shortly. Ty Roberts, writer-director Lane Garrison, the star of the film, and Ned Van Zant, who not only is in the film, but it is adapted from the book written by his, I believe his grandfather, Tom Pendleton. Either his father or his grandfather. His grandfather actually founded Fort Worth, Texas. It is, The Iron Orchard is a film that's set in the days of the Wildcatters. Uh, everybody looking for oil in Texas. And it's another, it's a stunning film. It's a, a story. It has all the history of the Old West and that romance and that mystique. Um, so hopefully we'll get, we'll have time to uh, get around to the Iron Orchard and these three guys who are just absolutely fabulous. But first, we're going to talk about the big buzz, uh, Captain Marvel. Almost half a billion dollars this weekend worldwide. Just under 150, or uh, somewhere around 150, 155 million in the U.S. alone. This is an amazing, amazing opening for this film. I believe it ranks in the top six box office openings of all time. The film is electrifying. It's exhilarating. And for those of you that have seen the film, I think you're going to agree. Goose, the cat goose, he rules. But the person stealing the show is none other than Ben Mendelsohn. Uh, he steals the show and he steals your heart in his role as Talus, the shape-shifting leader of the Skrull invasion of Earth. Uh, and there are all kinds of secrets revolving around Talus that we see unfold as the film progresses. Um, for those of you that don't know the story, of course, by now I think everybody does. Brie Larson stars as Carol Danvers, a.k.a. Captain Marvel. Uh, she's an ex-U.S. Air Force fighter pilot. She is now a member of an elite Kree military unit called Star Force. Uh, her DNA was fused with that of a Kree during an accident at some point, giving her super, superhuman strength, energy projection, flight. Uh, she is a believer in truth and justice and eventually becomes a bridge between Earth and space. Um, it's very interesting. She goes toe-to-toe in, in, and works with Jude Law in his exciting role as the commander of Star Force and Carol Danvers' mentor. Because initially, she doesn't remember anything about her past. She doesn't know who, who she is. And she believes herself to be a part of Star Force. To be part of, of, of uh, she is a Cree. So watching this unfold and watching the dynamic between them is fascinating. And needless to say, uh, Bishi, ha- Bishi veers, as she is known in the Cree world and in Star Force, or Bishi Carol Danvers, or Captain Marvel, um, she is a force to be reckoned with. And watching Brie Larson and Jude Law go toe-to-toe is pure delight. It is delicious watching the two of them. But all of this starts with story and the directors. And the co-writers and co-directors, writers along with some other people, but also um, co-directors, Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck, you know them best for their films, their intimate character studies, Half Nelson, Sugar, and, of course, the incredible Mississippi Grind, starring Ben Mendelsohn and Ryan Reynolds. An amazing, amazing film. They're excellent storytellers and filmmakers. But my concern when they were first announced as the directors of Captain Marvel 
was they had little to no VFX and CGI experience, an element that we all know commands a large part of the MCU and any, in, and any individual Marvel film. I have to tell you, their visuals blew me away. Um, absolutely outstanding. Their overall visual tonal bandwidth is well-defined, cohesive. It's visually exciting and beautiful. Thanks to the use of electrifying colors that are balanced against the natural tones and city landscape of Earth. Um, their character development is as comes as no surprise at all. Um, is deep. It's textured. It's tapestried. There is no lily white hero. Everyone has flaws. Be it Nick Fury. Be it Agent Coulson. And one of the most fun parts of Captain Marvel is we are set in the 90s. So we are essentially meeting Coulson, who has just started with S.H.I.E.L.D., and Nick Fury, uh, who is still very young and still has eyesight in both eyes. Um, the characters are all flawed, but all have redemptive qualities, which we get to see the potential for, if not occur, as the film proceeds. Um, and this is one of the strongest suits of the film as a whole. Um, I can't, I can't say enough about that. Um, timely, topical. The story speaks directly to the times we now live in, the political vitriol that has trickled down, infecting the minds of average citizens, the creation and celebration of divisiveness and building of walls that create and promote adversity and hatred as opposed to coming together. We see all of this addressed in this film. Um, it, it, if you haven't seen it, I can't encourage you highly enough to go out and see it in the theater. At the press day about a week and a half ago, I had a chance to ask Ryan and Anna about working with VFX and CGI for the first time. Ryan spoke up and talked about the experience in jumping into the MCU and utilizing VFX and CGI, and then was piggybacked by the leader of the MCU, Kevin Feige. Take a listen to what they had to say. Well, congratulations, guys. In a word, the film is electrifying. Uh, and this, I got to ask Ryan and Anna, I've been on Do that. Do that. Here. I'm here, oh, Sam. Uh, I'm here. I'm okay. so sorry. Oh, you're in the light. You, okay, my bad. You know my bad. I know the two of you. Um, we've been on this journey for years, going all the way back to Half Nelson, Sugar, Mississippi Grind. To see what the two of you have done here is amazing. This is a leap that few directors get a chance to make from the world of a little indie film to a Marvel tentpole. So I'm curious what the learning curve was like for the two of you doing Captain Marvel and now introducing and working with VFX-heavy uh, visuals as opposed to your your character-driven beauty that you hey, still retain. <laughs> I said that character-driven beauty that is still here. What's true. I mean, I think in the early conversations with Kevin and with Bree, that's what we wanted to bring to this story is is a continuation of the things we've done in our other movies, which is an intimacy and, and, and character-focused storytelling. Uh, the visual effects were challenging at first for us, but we were working with the best in the business here, and they've done you know one or two of these movies before we got here, and we were just um, we were in good hands, and we were able to, to lean on them and work very collaboratively with the, um, the VFX team and, and learn how that works. And they were patient with us, 
and um, it was it was it was wonderful. It was I can't think of a better studio to take that leap with. I mean, they're just the best collaborators at Marvel, and really let us tell the story we wanted to tell. Well, it's it's I mean, in terms of the visual effects, it was having Victoria Alonso, who's been with us since the beginning, who knows this stuff inside and out, and is an amazing <clears throat> mentor to filmmakers. Christopher Townsend was our visual effects supervisor, who's done many movies for us. And uh, and because it ultimately is always about the story, there's nobody pushing. Process never um, uh, overwhelms story. We'll alter the process if it fits the story, if it fits their vision. Um, and that's how you end up with a great movie like this. And it is indeed a great movie like this. And I have to, I've got to talk about Ben Davis, uh, cinematographer. Um, he's no stranger to the MCU or blockbuster filmmaking. He's done Doctor Strange, Guardians of the Galaxy, Age of Ultron. But he also does these smaller, intimate films like Tamara Drew or Layer Cake and even the Academy Award winner three billboards. Um, here with Captain Marvel, he gets to utilize all the tools in his cinematographic uh, toolbox to visually and emotionally create worlds that, while starkly diff different at first blush, have underlying commonalities that bode well for this very cohesive visual tonal bandwidth. Compounding that are editors Debbie Berman and Elliot Graham. Oh my God. I'm already I'm already looking at them as potential no Oscar nominees come next year. Rapier, rapid fire, they keep the action, the story moving as we go from space to earth, all around Los Angeles, into space again. But they find those sweet spots of quiet where emotions swell. And not only do you get to breathe, but you really get to absorb what has been happening and appreciate the moments of humanity that are unfolding in this film. And I say humanity because we really do get a chance to see what makes us the what makes us the best part of humanity when we put our minds to it. Uh Brie Larson, we've watched her come up through the ranks. Short-term 12 really was a big stepping stone for her. Um, then Room, of course. And now she convey as Carol Danvers in Captain Marvel, she can excels at conveying the dramatic heavier weight of uncertainty and not knowing the truth about herself and her past. This is part of this whole self-identity exploration on all of these films that we're going to talk about today that we have our guests calling in about. Everything revolves around self-identity, finding out who you are. Um, there's something, her athleticism is incredible. And as she very proudly can state, um, she can lift 500 pounds. She can push a Jeep. Uh, she has trained, she trained extensively and she did as much as she could possibly do herself in bringing this character to life. But what I really love, one of the things that Brie does uh, as the character, particularly with her superpowers uh, as Captain Marvel, there are these incredible mid-air poses and VFX spinning rotations. You may have seen them in some of the trailers. You've seen them on some of the posters. And if you've seen the film, you've seen them throughout the film. She captures a stance with a bent knee and foot almost tucked under her, similar to Superman, but more with a fourth position ballerina pirouette, so that when she spins, she almost looks like a ballerina spinning inside a jewelry music box. And it's a lovely, subtle, feminine reference um, 
we don't want to forget the fact this is a woman, Captain Marvel. Captain Marvel has always been a man, now a woman. But what I appreciate is that Anna and Ryan have made sure that we remember at all times that she is, first and foremost, a woman with feminine touches here and there uh, in terms of earthling clothing. Uh, But this is one of the things that stands out most for me is this VFX with her spinning and looking like a ballerina in a music box. It is absolutely stunning. Uh, Again, see it, see it, see it. And here's one little tidbit for you. Cinematographer Ben Davis, he's also the cinematographer on Dumbo. And that's all I'm going to say. So, Captain Marvel, I will have more on BehindTheLensOnline.net about Captain Marvel uh, in the coming days. I wanted to give everyone a chance to see the film first before putting anything out there. I firmly believe in waiting until release for reviews, especially uh, and with interviews and with kind of questions that I like to ask because it always involves giving backstory and giving some context. And often that might sway you in a certain direction uh, pertaining to a film. And a film like Captain Marvel, I want you to go in cold. So hopefully most of you did. Uh, For those of you that didn't, plug up yours, and I hope you didn't listen to anything that we just said. Um, But it is definitely, it's a good thing to add your money to the box office on this one. And right now we are going to welcome... I'm so excited. I'm so excited to be welcoming Andre Phillips and Charles Volo, the co-writers and directors of Lupe. Hi, guys. Hi, how are you? Thank you for having us. Oh, I am very thrilled to have you guys here. What a beautiful, quiet character study and exploration of self-identity film. This is, it's, I could not stop watching it. I could not look away. Oh, well, thank you so much. I mean, we're both really excited that you um, enjoyed it so much. You know, where did this story come from? We have a young man, Raphael, a boxer from Cuba. He's in New York. He's looking for his sister. Uh, he stumbles upon her, her childhood friend that he also knew. Uh, things take off. But he's, you know, he comes across as being this very macho boxer. He's been boxing and beating things up with anger his whole life, but he's going through his own identity crisis as he's on this journey to find his sister, who it seems also Mm -hmm. had her own identity crisis going on. So I'm curious where the whole idea for this story came from. Oh, um, great question. Um, First off, apologies. Do you have a feedback on our end? Uh, We've got a tiny bit of reverb back here. I know Pam's trying to adjust it. Okay, sorry about that. No, um, it's a a great question. I think the the inspiration was multifaceted. We started off with a very basic story, and other elements started building upon each other until we sort of ended up with the the story that we had. Mm -hmm. Now, was it always your intent to direct the film yourselves? Um, Yes, we did want to co-direct a film together um and and yeah we we kind of were looking for a project for the longest time 
and we were talking with different folks about different stories and speaking with the folks we did, uh, specifically folks in the transgender community, kind of led us to this story and led us to this process. Well, you know, speaking about because you do explore the transgender community here, I've got to give you a huge, huge shout out. I am a huge fan of Celia Harrison. Her work in this film, outstanding. As she plays Raphael's BFF, uh, Lana. Um, you know, how did you go about developing her character and easing in Raphael's con- confusion and quest? Um, yeah, she's funny. Uh, Celia's so amazing. She ended up being a lot of people's favorite character. Just um, so cool. She wasn't actually, um, she's not a trained, you know, actor or anything like that. She was, you know, was actually consulting with us on the writing process uh, as we were developing the idea and sort of she lent us, I mean, just so much during um, during that development process already. I mean, just sharing just such deep and personal and intimate stories with us um, to the point where we were basically eventually just like, you know, you know so much, you've given us so much, do you want to just be this person, be this character, and, and, and help us in production as well as pre-production? Um, you know, writing, I shouldn't even say pre-production. Um, and yeah, so she, she really brought a lot of, um, of herself into the role. We had, um, unfortunately, we didn't have a ton of time to do any sorts of reads or anything like that. You know, Celia was based out of, um, out of Nevada. We were filming in New York. Um, so really, I think... The first time Celia and Raphael met was the day before we started production. Wow. And, um, yeah, it was, it was a little nerve-wracking in that regard, but one thing I'm sure you've noticed is that Raphael just has just buckets of uh, charisma. Oh, my God, and, yes. And uh, is a super personal, lovable person, and, and they both just got along so quickly and so well. Um, it really translated, I think, on screen and really saved our grits a little bit. I get, I get the two of them. They truly do come across as BFFs. Um, the chemistry between them is fabulous. The ease with which they interact with each other, absolutely stunning. You would have thought that they had known each other for years. So yeah, I, I mean, it's it's something that Raphael can um, has an ability to just do, just like make friends right away with folks. And, and Celia is just a very open caring person herself um they really did you really by the end of the night on the before we started production like you said you would have thought they'd known each other for years yeah um and it was something that we really just tried to play off of as much as we could uh while we were directing their scenes was because they had that comfort level so quickly and so easily and it was such a pressurized environment you know it's a film set Celia's never acted before you know Raphael and and us and, and the production are doing everything we can to make her feel comfortable um, I think because of like some of those combinations of factors, and I think because she resonated so clearly with this, the source material, so much of it being hers, um, that we we really tried to play off like sort of play off that and use that to our advantage while we were directing those scenes, um, because they did come off as BFS. They, you could, they could have been hanging out with each other in New York for a year, two years, three years, and, and you wouldn't really know. And I think that uh, was really helpful for us. It was also really helpful for pulling performances out of Celia because she felt comfortable with Raphael. Um, and by extension, us as well. Um, I think we got more really excellent um, performances from Celia than, than we may have had they not had that relationship. Yeah, I mean, it was just, it looked effortless, seamless, and so beautiful, so honest and authentic, uh, their relationship. You know, and you brought up New York, and I'm so glad you did. 
you don't shoot in the typical, and you're not showing us the typical areas of New York that we're so used to seeing in films. So can you talk to me a little bit about working with your DP, Tom Fitzgerald? You have some beautiful, beautiful lensing in here, both with your interiors and some of your exterior night shots. So I'm curious, what what were your visual references? How did you go about developing your visual tonal bandwidth in this film and making such great use of close-ups, not ECUs, but just like a two-shot close-up or your mid-shots so that everything feels very intimate? Um, I, I think we can both sort of speak to this. Um, uh, so, and, and I'll put a little caveat in there just because he'd kill me if we didn't say it. Uh, Tom it goes professionally as T. Axon Fitzgerald. Um, and, uh, he would, he would, he would be mad at us if we didn't point that out. Um, okay. the, <laughs> I'm sorry, the, um, uh, our visual, I mean, I think Chuck knows better the visual references we use to get into the film, but I think honestly the, the use of ECUs and the way that we chose um, to use parts of New York that weren't seen as much, um, pulled a lot from the fact that I was, I was living in New York at the time. I'm living in a small neighborhood in Queens called Sunnyside. Um, really awesome little place, but not your typical sort of hangout when you go to New York City. It's mostly families, um, older folks and stuff, and, and sort of just a section of New York that a lot of people live in that nobody really often goes and visits and sees. Mm-hmm. Um, so we really tried to lean into that. That's where a lot of folks who were recently, you know, immigrated into the United States and to stay. That's where they make their lives. That's where they get their start in the U.S. Um, and it's been that way for a long time. Um, so I think that really drove, you know, that version of New York being the character version of New York that our characters would experience uh, realistically, I think is sort of really what drove us to seek those, those, those places out. And, um, and yeah, I mean, I think that's how we, we sort of approach New York. I mean, for the, you know, more deeper visual references, I think there are a variety of things we use. That's correct. I mean, I do think from the beginning, we wanted to approach New York from the view of someone living inside it or even mm-hmm. in its underbelly. Often the city is viewed from these beautiful aerials and above, almost like you're living in a high-rise in yeah. Manhattan. But our characters are poor. They're immigrants. They're on the fringes of society. They don't get to see those high-end views. They get to see the, the, you know, the grimy staircase in the Bronx or that little alleyway in, in, in Harlem. And, and we wanted to film not from a bird's-eye view but almost from a ground view because we felt that characters were very much living um, under the radar, and, and as most um, folks who do come from other countries often do have to start their way from the bottom up, and we thought that was a more exciting view and a more realistic view. And so we definitely tried to find locations that fit with that um, and and seem to give the city a bit of an excitement but also a bit of a grime to it because it has both, and we felt that the grime was a bit more appropriate to the story we were telling. I mean, it just just beautifully done, and you punctuate it. The lighting that the, the lighting palette that and design that you you guys have come up with and doing this night for night shooting, uh, just you've got some really you find beauty. We actually see some beauty in these grittier parts. Um, so I'm curious as to you know what you went through development wise and discussion wise in bringing out some of the more beautiful aspects and using lighting to your advantage. Yeah, uh, great question. Um, you know, one of the things we did was we tested early on shooting at night and really pushing the camera. Um, you know, one of the things about our DP, uh, T. Axton, is he's a very bold DP. He, he pushes things and tries out things that would probably make other cinematographers a bit uncomfortable. 
but as far as just charging out into the night, you know, throwing a rain protection over the camera because it's raining and charging into the back alleys and just, you know, not being afraid to try things. Um, you know, we definitely tested things as best we could, but there was a lot of on-the-day uh, trial and error as well where we just charge into the city, you know, with a little skeleton crew, just finding these moments, letting the steam rise up, letting the, the passing headlamps from cars, you know, blaze into the camera and call flares. Um, that um, willingness to experiment and try things was really something that helped us out. Oh, and it just, it looks beautiful. Uh, and another thing that really I so appreciate here, you have a lot of flashbacks to Raphael, his sister Isabel, and their friend Elsa growing up in Cuba. You don't, so, so often a filmmaker will go for a sepia tone or they'll tone down the saturation and the color, but it's very vibrant, very alive. You really celebrate the greenery of where they're living, the pops of color with laundry on the clothesline. And I, you, then you very nicely integrate it within the present day as Raphael is remembering something or in one case when Elsa is remembering something so that it is just as vibrant and current for them right now as when they were children. So I'm curious what led you to stick with that tone instead of doing a faded washout as a memory. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm really glad that came through. I mean, I think that, um, A, you know, right, it's such a played out kind of trope to throw on, you know, like you said, a sepia tone or, you know, black and white and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that that we wanted to avoid just you know, from that aesthetic perspective. And also um, uh, the, I've, you know, Chuck and I have both been to the Caribbean a few times, um, a lot of friends and, and such who, who live down there. So I'd, I'd been down and we shot the Dominican Republic at Cuba, um, sort of just for logistical reasons, because when we were filming, it was just at the beginning of the thaw of relations and logistically we just couldn't pull it off. Uh, luckily we had... Um, a lot of contacts and, and really good friends and talented individuals who we knew in the Dominican Republic. Um, so we, you know, we, we shot uh, out in the sugarcane fields in these villages called Bates, um to sort of, you know, be a mutual landscape that Cuba and the Dominican Republic would share. And when you get out there um, and you're amongst, you know, you're in a village inside of a sugarcane field and there's music playing, there's, you know, people running around and, and, and living their lives and, and that vibrancy is, just so present and so clear that we were in, in the same way that we wanted to capture a realistic environment and sort of place that our, our characters were living in New York. I think it, we really wanted to make sure that the version of the Caribbean, the version of Cuba that we showed, despite not being the country itself was as authentic as possible. And, and, um, you know, and again, this kind of goes out a shout out not to, not just to our folks like Yvonne Mendez in the Dominican Republic who, who helped us find just phenomenal locations, and not just Tom Fitzgerald, who, as you said, lends it beautifully um, and really leaned into the vibrancy of the place, but also to our editor, Sharon Cameron Amir, Amir, who um, I, I think really masterfully was able to weave, like you said, these, these sort of dreary or darker nighttime scenes of New York City in with the vibrancy and sort of heat and energy that we, we got in the Caribbean and, and in a way that was complementary and not sort of uh, maybe stereotypical, as you might get, you know, because that's mm-hmm. the other danger, right, is you show the Caribbean and you show bright lights and you show loud music and you show... You know, people just smiling all the time. It's like, yeah. well, no, it's not like that. It's a bright, beautiful, sunny place, but it's also a realistic place that people live. Yeah. I, um, it, so I think that's sort of really how we try to approach that part of the film. Oh, I mean, it just absolutely works so beautifully. And also, it gives you the sense that these memories of childhood are what are really driving Raphael forward in his pursuit mm-hmm. to find his sister. And it is, just to him, it's like it just happened yesterday. He was with her, and now he's not. 
Um, so you retain that essence of presence. And I just thought mm. it works so well in your overall construct here. You know, I'm curious for you guys, what was the biggest hurdle for you, the biggest challenge in getting this film made? Um, I think, and I think, you know, Chuck and I might uh, point out slightly different aspects that were the most challenging, um, but, you know, because, you know, things affect you as an individual differently, right? But the, um, honestly, I think being first-time filmmakers, we've worked in the industry in, in various capacities a long time, making a narrative feature sure. is just its own sort of beast, <laughs> and, and um, I think just really learning how things, you know, really getting to see firsthand in, in, in this real way how many smaller things end up being sort of a part of a production that you don't know you know until you you're, you find out that you don't have it yet. Um, and, you know, there's, so there's the logistics and sort of the, just the time and energy commitment that you're not you're not fully aware of until you're in the middle of it, and then you just, you got to do it. And that's mm-hmm. it. Um, there's also, you know, even just learning how scenes will translate from, from script to screen and, and, and where there are differences and, and what things are lost and what things are retained. Um, and while that wasn't a necessary hindrance into making a film, it was certainly one of the biggest lessons. Or seeing that translation, I think, was one of the bigger lessons I, I pulled from making the film. I, I don't know if that makes sense to you, Chuck. No, no, you're absolutely correct. Just learning what you don't know on the day. Um, and, you know, ultimately it was an amazing time and it was an amazing process of collaboration. But there were just so many moving parts that we had to learn to quantify um, that sometimes, you know, just film school doesn't prep you for. You just got to get out there and do it. And I think we learned and sometimes we learned the hard way. Uh, but at every stage, we had such a great group around us of cast and crew that even when we would stumble, they'd catch us and vice versa. And we were able to make it to the finish line um, through all the craziness um, and all the things that happened. Well, I'm so glad you did make it to the finish line with this one. So now where can, I know you're still on the fest circuit, so where can people see Lupe? Where will this be showing next? So right now we have a couple more screenings in um, in San Jose at CineQuest 2019. Um, we have a screening tonight, I believe, around 7 o'clock, and then another screening Sunday at 6 p.m. Uh, just throw those hits out there for CineQuest, which was just an awesome time. Um, and then um, next, we we have some screenings at River Run, North Carolina, coming up. Um, and beyond that, we're sort of weighing our options and, and beginning the distribution search. Exactly. Some some other things on the horizon, but haven't been officially announced just yet, but hopefully will be coming very soon. Ooh. Well, guys, I can't thank you enough. I would love to have you back on the show as you get more things lined up for Lupe or more projects. I would love to have you come back on the show and talk some more. Oh, well, we super appreciate that. We'd love to come back. This has been delightful. Oh, guys, thank you so much. Andre Phillips and Charles Vu. Am I saying it right, Chuck? Vuolo? Oh, um, yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> all right. All right. I've been getting names lately. I say, like, all right, I really don't want to upset them, so I don't want to screw it up. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, guys, thank you again. So every, anybody up at CineQuest, you can still catch Lupe and then River Run, North Carolina. Now, do we have a website people can go to? Yeah, we do. Yep, um, that's lupefilm.com. You can catch the trailer there, and we'll be updating with more info and press stuff. Wonderful. Guys, thank you again so much, and I can't wait to talk to you again. You same here. We'd look forward to it. Thank you so much for giving us the time. Oh, bye Take guys. Care. Bye-bye. Bye. Take care. Bye. 
and Andre Phillips and Charles Avuolo. And now, now we're welcoming the multi-hat wearing writer, director, editor, Cambria Matlow. Hi, Cambria. How are you? Oh, hi there. I'm doing really well. Thanks. How's you know, going? Uh, it's going. What an ambitious little <laughs> endeavor! What an ambitious little endeavor you have with uh, Woods Rider, uh, and wearing all the, yeah. this multiplicity of hats. Um, talk to me about Woods Rider. How personal story? Nineteen-year-old Sadie Ford, snowboarder. You know, lives off the beaten tra- off the beaten path in more ways than one. Under a tent in snow, trees. Um, how did this, this doesn't seem like a story that would just jump out, um, because of the, the lower profile, it seems that Sadie ha- keeps. So I'm curious how this story came to you. Yeah. Um, well, uh, years and years of being a snowboarder myself ah. and spending quite a bit of time just on a mountain in the snow sometimes with friends, sometimes by myself, and um, and I'm sorry, my phone is being a little bizarre and echoey. Oh, you so sound I'm fine on this end. Work through it. Um, but yeah, I just every I just found myself every time I was up there um, as someone who had lived that life, just really wanting to see that environment on a big screen in the way that. I was kind of living in it. Um, I really just wanted to see that that kind of place, and I really wanted to see um, a character that just kind of validated my own experience um, as a young woman in that world, um, in a pretty male-dominated world, um, whether it's snowboarding or skiing itself, um, or even just, like, living... Uh, you know, in a mountain town, I think it's, I don't know what the percentages are, but there's a lot more guys than girls. Um, and so I ended up um, moving to Portland, Oregon, and I thought, well, I'm, you know, this is a movie that I can shoot near any mountain as long as I find the right character. And so um, I ended up posting a flyer um, at the local grocery store and government camp. Um, and I, I said, you know, are you a relatively young woman who lives full-time on the mountain? And, you know, are you a passionate snowboarder? Don't have to be a pro, but just a passionate snowboarder. And do you want to make a movie with me? <laughs> um, and, and I found Sadie. And she was, uh, she was down to do it. Wow. And then she kind of brought, she brought you know, her own kind of whole individual personality and um, interests that, you know, kind of went far above and beyond, like, what I even had in mind for mm-hmm. what this person would do. Um, and hence the ca- the camping in the woods and the dog and <laughs> all of the things that make me. The, the dog's cute. You know, anytime we get yeah. dogs, cats, horses, we're happy. We're happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, how did you go about developing a through line and figuring out what this was going to be because you you have a very interesting approach here there's no voiceover there's no narration you have very minimal use of any kind of music 
So I'm curious how you develop, or did you just start shooting and see what unfolded? Well, I knew as, you know, as a snowboarder, someone where that's their primary activity for the season, that I was certainly going to get a lot of certain kinds of behaviors. Um, And I really was quite... I, I kind of just instinctively knew, okay, Sadie's telling me that this is her plan for the afternoon. Okay, yes, that's definitely something that I want to film. And, you know, if she's going to go do this other thing or if she's, like, getting in and out of a car, <laughs> that's not something I need to film necessarily. Right. Um, I just was very kind of selective um, about the scenes that we chose to film, which kind of helped just with our crew in terms of stamina. Mm-hmm. We weren't just chasing her around 24 hours a day. Um, and then I also just got a lot of communication from Sadie. She would just text me very regularly about what she was doing, and she was just, she was as clear, I think, as she could be while, you know, living an authentic life about, like, you know, these are my plans for the day, and today I have no plans. Mm-hmm. Um. And so we really worked together to figure out what it was that we were going to film. Mm-hmm. So, uh, um, and then, you know, I didn't, you know, obviously, hey, I'm going to come see my tent in the woods, and I'm making a new tent site today, and I'm going to put that up. And I was like, yes, that's definitely something I want to film. Um, you know, and then the weather kind of gave us a bit of a through line in terms mm-hmm. of, like, you know, it really didn't snow all that much in this film that was supposed to be about someone who exists for snow. Um, and so that kind of became part of the story. And, um, you know, some other bits and pieces popped up. And then, um, you know, I, I guess I won't spoil the ending. It's not, not a don't dramatic spoil- ending. but It's an ending, <laughs> but don't spoil it. You know, um, yeah. Once you had all of these pieces that you were accumulating, when did you actually start the editing process? Or were you actually already kind of editing as you were getting these pieces to put the puzzle together? Hmm. We looked at scenes every day that we had shot in the evening. Um, but I wasn't really putting anything together chronologically. Um, we did, um, together with my producer, Jenny Grobiard, um, we put some scenes together. I think we finished in, we finished shooting in, let's say mid-March. And I think that summer was the first time that we really started putting footage together. Mm-hmm. And then honestly, it was a year later when I, when I cut the rest of the film. Um, I think we shot in twenty. 20- 14 and the bulk of the editing happened in the fall of 2015. Wow. And finally, you're coming out tomorrow on digital so everyone can see this in 2019. It's been been quite a journey. Uh, We showed in some festivals kind of through the years. Um, The film won a Best Experimental Feature Award um, at the Santa Cruz Film Festival. Um, and really has just showed at a select few festivals um, in Oregon and I guess also in 
in Northern California and in Los Angeles as well. Um, but it's going much wider. Tomorrow it's going to be on Amazon and iTunes and uh, I think it's Xbox and Google Play and somewhere else. And I think Comcast is putting it out to wherever it's going to land for um, those stations. So it's, it's going to go pretty wide pretty fast. Wow. Very exciting. Yeah. You, after this journey, it's taken, what, five years to get here, so you should be excited. Yeah, yeah. Well, docs, docs take a long time. My goal is to, you know, have it be shorter and shorter each time. You know, I'm curious, Cambria, what led you to go to not have voiceover and narration? So often with documentaries like this where you're following one person, you're doing a day in the life or a profile or something such as you have here with Sadie. No voiceover, no narration. We're we're dropped down in her life. Um, mm-hmm. Was there ever a consideration that you wanted to do narration or a voiceover or a Q&A with you or your camera guy talking to her repeatedly saying, hey, what are you doing? Uh, you know, things like that that we have seen so many times yeah well I, I think you just kind of said it I think that we've just kind of seen that so many times uh, and I really wanted to I just wanted to spend some time with her I wanted the audience to just really be able to be with her in her world um, and have this immersive experience um, and we actually did toy with having some voiceover. Um, Sadie is actually a really amazing writer. And at a certain point, she revealed to me this journal that she had been writing um, while we were filming and that she just had for years. Um, and we did play with having her record um, some of her writings. Mm-hmm. And what I found is that in the scene where her voiceover occurred, um, just the simple act of having her talk about kind of anything specifically, really, it made us, it made the scene then be only about that thing that she was talking about, mm-hmm. as opposed to letting the scene kind of be whatever an audience member saw it as and mm-hmm. letting it kind of be what each person who sees it needs it to be, um, and really having its own life for each viewer. Um, it just felt limiting and and much less expansive mm-hmm. um, and really just kind of took us out of the mood of the film, um, which is a pretty moody piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it just it, it it just wasn't the right choice for this for this film. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I feel like you know we, I feel like all of our kind of guesses about what she might be thinking are are almost more interesting in a way mm-hmm. um, than, than having her kind of just, like, narrow it down and tell you exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think the film is really just about, you know, it's about her and, and witnessing her experience, but also just kind of wondering, like, gosh, what would I do if that were me? And and how would I respond to the situation? And would I even put myself in the situation? Mm-hmm. Why or why not? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, and I, and it's just, it's also a very visual film, and I, I think that that's just, you know, cinema is 
cinema for a reason, and I really wanted to um, just focus on the visual experience and as well the sound experience. I love the sound. Um, I love your sound yeah. because we can hear the crunch of snow, the crunch of leaves. We hear footsteps. We in the quiet, we can hear her movements as she's, you know, pulling a rope as she's setting up her tent or or the snowshoes. Um and every sound with the snowboard when she's snowboarding. And that adds so much to the ambient tone and and as a result the emotionality. Yeah, yeah, thanks. I'm I'm glad that that comes through. Um, we worked really hard um, with the sound design and editing team and as well um, the composer, who there are like two composed songs in there, but um, they're really pretty selectively chosen moments. Mm-hmm. Um, really just meant, again, to sort of heighten the, the emotional experience. You know, I'm curious, Cambria, what uh, what camera were you using and, and how big was, uh, you know, the gear, you know, uh, whole light packs? What were you doing? Because with the fluidity of Sadie's life and going here and going there and also being in more, quote unquote, rugged terrain, you don't want to be lugging, mm-hmm. you know, you know, passels of cameras and light packages and all of this with you. So I'm curious what you were doing technically uh, in terms of camera and lighting. Yeah, um, so we used a RED camera, and it was quite heavy. It was the first RED camera. Um, we also had, I believe it was a Sackler tripod, mm-hmm. and no light fit, and a zoom recorder. And that was really it. Uh and it was pretty interesting. Um, we learned really quickly that it was a pretty big pain in the butt to <laughs> lug all that stuff up to, really up to anywhere in the snow. Um, Sadie advised us that we would need snowshoes to get to her um, tent site where she was living in the woods. And the first day we went up there, we didn't listen to her. And we were carrying all this, you know, heavy equipment, and it didn't really suck. <laughs> it took a really long time, and it was embarrassing, and she was totally right, and we ended up getting snowshoes, and that helped. Um, the equipment was still really heavy, and then we ended up getting this kind of, like, toboggan sled thing um, that I physically attached to my body, and I think um, Jared North held on to the camera, and I put the tripod, which was really heavy, in that toboggan and then was able to kind of lug it up oh my God. that way. Um, so it was super physical. Definitely it was handy that everyone on the crew had, you know, some to lots of experience in the snow and just kind of dealing with being out in the elements for a long period of time mm-hmm. and carrying heavy stuff around while dealing with the elements. <laughs> Did the elements present any kind of a problem for the camera itself? Uh, luckily, no. Um, we oh. were pretty worried about that. We took good care of it, kept it covered up a lot of the time. Um, but luckily, no. Um, for better or for worse, it was not. It was very wet outside. It often rained, or it was just kind of you know that Pacific Northwest, just kind of damp, permanent dampness. Mm-hmm. 
um, <clears throat> which we were, you know, we were worried about that moisture getting into the camera, so we were pretty protective of it. Um, but it wasn't super cold, um, and so we didn't have any issues with the camera, like, freezing up. Yeah, that that's um, where like, the problem you know, comes, like when it gets... batteries and stuff like that. Yeah. It's when it's freezing yeah. cold or exceedingly hot. You get those two extremes, and that's a nightmare for you. Yeah. And you yeah. you would have preferred I somehow I think you would have preferred more cold so you had more snow. Uh, <laughs> I mean, always anyone who loves snow just wants more snow. So yeah, that was a you know, but for better or for worse, it it was what it was, and you know, maybe because of that, we had a more functional camera, and and definitely because of that, we had a little more time to spend with Cindy. Mm-hmm. I think if it had been more snowy than time period that we were shooting she would have gotten a little bit busier snowboarding uh mm-hmm. log- logically um but yeah we had a little more time to just kind of really hang mm-hmm. and i think that actually kind of benefited the film in a way so i'm curious what what did you learn as a director um with the challenges and of making woods rider that you can now take forward that will help you in your future endeavors, uh, maybe a path not taken or something that maybe you think you should have done, and then spe- and then also taking it into the distribution phase, which that's another mm-hmm. animal. That's another whole animal amongst itself. So I'm curious about what you know what you learned to overcome challenges here in making this. Well, I think. Um... I mean, one thing that was really amazing that I i don't know that I quite knew it at the beginning of the shoot, but I definitely knew, you know, by the end and and even today is that um, just developing a really close relationship with this person who's allowing you to film them if you're making a documentary, mm-hmm. um, a close and trusting relationship um, is just so, so important. Um, I really didn't want to, I didn't want to film anything that Sadie didn't want me to film. I just really wanted to be respectful of the fact that, you know, a a human is letting you into their lives, you know, and that's a privilege. Um, And that's just something that, you know, unless you're making a film about a nasty politician whose name shall be unnamed, um, your characters just deserve five thousand percent of your you know respect and and time um because you you know if you don't have them on your side you don't have a movie Mm -hmm. um and i i think maybe and i i i've kept sadie kind of pretty close um and i haven't you know, I've kind of wanted to be protective of her, not that she means protecting, but um, I think maybe on a slightly similar note, um, I think that your team is really important. Mm-hmm. And I, again, could not have done this without, you know, the DP was just amazing, Jared Norris and Jimmy um, Robillard, the producer who kind of came on pretty soon before we shot and just kind of saved me. Um saved the sound of the film as well. (laughs) Um, And I had, you know, uh, another producer who came on board at the end of the film, but 
I think just uh, putting together a team who can really support you and just not being afraid to to ask for the kind of help that you need at any given stage is, is very important. And I think I would carry that into, you know, I'm certainly doing that right now as I go into this distribution phase. Um, but I think just like, you know, surrounding myself with even more um, supportive folks on a future project would be all the more valuable. Mm-hmm. Just kind of letting people, letting people in who want to help. How has, um, how has this, help. how has this distribution uh, process been for you? Uh, to be honest, it's been a little challenging. Um, the film is, you know, it's an art film about snowboarding. So, or snowboarder. Um, so it's been a little challenging to kind of present it properly to a lot of the more traditional channels. Mm-hmm. I think it's appeared a little too arty for a lot of the kind of, uh, you know, athletic adventure um, film uh, communities. Um, I think they, I think it's a little kind of strange to them. At the same time, I think that for the art uh, film community, I think that when you tell someone you've made a film about a snowboarder, um, it sounds a little kind of jockey and um, and uh, basic. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and because I'm in both of those worlds firmly, I feel like I can say those things. Um, and so it, it's exciting to get it out there because I think that the, there's no reason that those two worlds can't kind of like talk to each other more mm-hmm. um, and be in, in conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the, so the, the wide digital release is exciting in that way, but um, I will say I, I would have liked for the film to play more film festivals and it just, it just was not to be. Mm-hmm. But I do think that now that the digital release is happening, I think it might be discovered on a wider level and, Hopefully it'll it'll find its audience, um, people who kind of aren't afraid to straddle those two worlds. I think there's <laughs> a lot of those people out there. Now, are you working on anything else on a new project not, right now, or do you have anything on the horizon? Yeah, I've got um, a short personal essay film that I'm in post on. Um, film about two trees in my neighborhood and motherhood and some other things uh, kind of weave together a bunch of different elements. Um, again, with the trees. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in this case, this film is uh, it's visual and it is actually uh, voiceover um, from front to back. So I, I decided I did want to work with voiceover in this case. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> and then I've got a feature documentary that I'm in pre-production on. It's that is also a personal family story and um, about my sister specifically. And that has me traveling with some frequency to Los Angeles, where I'm from, to shoot that. And then I've got a feature narrative kind of somewhere in my back pocket that I'm working on. And that is a, uh, a period western that takes place in um, South Central Oregon in like 1855. Ooh, now that's the one I really want to yeah. see. Ah, that's the one I really want to <laughs> see. You just piqued my interest there, big time. <laughs> so that's one you need yeah. to work on. <laughs> oh my! 
I said, that's the one you need to work on. Yeah. Good. I'm glad you're interested. You're, yeah. You're pure. I'll see what I can do. Yes. Well, Cambria, thank you so much for joining me on Behind the Lens today. This has been lovely. And, of course, everybody can see Woods Rider tomorrow. Um, it's yes. it's going to be on every digital platform there is. So, and, uh, uh, yeah. and some VOD, <laughs> too. So everyone can see it. And it's a beautiful film to watch if you just want to sit back medita- in a meditative state and watch a film and see nature's beauty and... You know, just and sit there and dream about. Gosh, why can't I do that? Um, <laughs> you know, this yeah, hopefully it's a little bit inspiring too. Yeah. Well, Cambria, thank you so much, and I hope you'll come back on the show again with your next project, be it your short or one of your features. Thank you. Yeah, that would be lovely. Right. Thank you, Appreciate Cambria. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much, Debbie. Bye bye. Okay. Bye bye. Thank you. Take care. Bye. And that was Cambria Matlow, director, writer, editor of Woods Rider on digital and VOD tomorrow. That is all the time that we have for today. Trying to think. I know we have people next week. I can't remember who they are, but we have more fun stuff next week. And um, I got to check and see when embargo gets lifted on Dumbo so we can talk about that. But that's a ways down the pike. I can tell you that much. But some other great films. Uh, I'm rushing out of the studio today to go and do interviews with our filmmakers and our star of The Mustang. I cannot recommend that movie highly enough. It is, it is amazing. It is a beautiful film. It's an amazing film. Uh, so next week you're going to hear more about The Mustang and my interviews with the director and the star of the film. Uh, so... Until next week, then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.